just take a moment and just lift our eyes a little higher, don't we? And then lift our expectations about what's going to happen in the future. Um, and today, we're going to be talking about lift your hands, and it is effectively uh, just a little bit of a, a talk about worship. So yes, so Jan pretty much picked that one right at the very start. Is that the most important one? Time will tell. So today is lift your hands in worship. That's not a Pentecostal church. If many of you, though, have probably have been to places like that, that's actually a rock concert somewhere. I concert somewhere. I don't know if it's a rock concert. And look at the people in there. So enthusiastic. Okay, lifting their hands. Um, are they worshipping? Well, they just about are, I think, in some of those cases, aren't they? Yeah. I tell you, I'll let you in a little secret. When we talked about this series, and I went home and said to Kim that I was going to do the, the one on lifting your hands in worship, she laughed at me. Why did she laugh at me? This country kid brought up in Wyndham and probably one of the most conservative churches in New Zealand. Um, don't know how to lift my hands above the waistline. And here now I'm speaking on this lifting your hands in worship. I have been practicing. Okay, I can do it, okay? <laughs> We've also been looking at some of the Psalms and some of the... Um, the songs of ascent that are in the Psalms, and those Psalms, if you remember what Craig said the last two Sundays, are about pilgrims and the Jews going towards Jerusalem, to the temple in Jerusalem, to worship. And as they approached the, the temple, and as they were going up the steps towards it, they would be singing these songs about worship. And this particular one here is an interesting one. It's actually the Second shortest psalm in the, in, the, um, in the Psalms. In fact, it's the second sh shortest chapter in the Bible. It's got three verses. Psalm 117 has only got two. This is what it says. So praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. You who serve at night in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands toward the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Jerusalem. How many people here work the night shift in the house of the Lord in this place? Anybody? No? Don't write it off too quick. There's probably a few of you who do some studies well into the night in preparation for home groups or taking home groups in the evening or preparing kids' church Sunday school lessons or even preparing sermons late into the night. Okay, but... That's not really the point. the point. If we take the at night out of that, they did have people in the temple who worked the night shift. They had to work through the night looking after lamps and things to keep the place running right throughout the night. The oils were not allowed to run out, etc. But regardless of what we do, we get busy, don't we? And we get wound up in our own little environment and we're doing stuff. And our home group that we lead is the most important thing to us or the, the kids' church that we lead is the most important thing, or our teaching, or our preaching can be the most important thing, and we just need to be told sometimes to stop. Remember what we're here for. 
we're here to serve the Lord. And we're here to worship the Lord. And they say, stop what you're doing in the house of the Lord and lift up your hands towards the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Is worship really what God wants from us? Is that what he wants? Does he want mission? Does he want prayer? Does he want all these other things first? Or is worship the thing that he really wants as number one? I'll tell you a story that you'll know very well about, for most of you, about a Samaritan woman who Jesus deliberately met up with by Jacob's well to be able to address a real need in her life. All right, This woman came in the afternoon to draw water at a time when there was nobody else around and Jesus knew that she would come alone because of her personal situation. She would come alone. And she came to get some water and Jesus was there and he asked her for a drink and the woman said, how can you, a Jew, ask of me, a Samaritan woman, water to drink? It just was not done because of the cultural differences between Jews and Samaritans. The woman said to him, sir, and then she, Jesus offered her living water. And this is what she said. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and I won't have to come here to draw water. Jesus then turns the focus on her personal situation and says, go get your husband, come back here, all right? And so she reluctantly opens up. She says, I haven't got a husband. And Jesus says to her, you've had five husbands and even and the man you're with now is not your husband, so in that you spoke the truth. Why did Jesus just pinpoint that in her life and expose it all out in front of her? The reason that Jesus did that was because of this. She has just asked for that living water. And of course, that living water is that healing water that Jesus would bring into her life, give her new life, help her with this brokenness that is in her life and help her to find salvation through that. Okay, and so Jesus just gently, because remember there's only two of them there, he asks her these questions. She gives him this answer. Jesus talks to her about it and says, yeah, you've, I know about your brokenness, really. I know about your brokenness. And she deflects. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, that is a deflection, isn't it? Because that was not part of the subject, but as Jesus was getting pretty close to home with some of her situations, she, um, she says this, and this is where we want to go to right now with the story. She said, he said to her, You people worship, you do not know what. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. And, of course, the Jews, it was through the Jewish line that the Messiah would come. And, of course, he was the Messiah. She didn't know that yet. And the Messiah would come through him, and that was the, the important thing. Uh, the Samaritans had cut off going down to Jerusalem to worship. Why? Because 
of friction between their, their two countries, their two cultures. The Samaritans were of Jewish derivatives, but they were not a pure people. They had mixed informations about them, and they were shunned by the Jews because of where they had come to. They had started worshipping in their own mountain so that they would not have to go down to Jerusalem and mix with the Jews and take the abuse, basically, down there. But Jesus says to her, salvation comes through the Jews, but a time is coming and now is here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So get that, you know, the time will come, it has now arrived, it doesn't matter whether it's Jerusalem or in that mountain, but worshippers, true worshippers would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such people to be his worshippers. God is seeking worshippers. Everything else comes from that. It comes from worship. Everything else that we do comes from the recognition of who Jesus is, our God is, and, and from worshipping him. And you say, why? Well, why is it that God is so intent on having people to worship him? Well, a little bit later, but... Is God a God who needs people to worship him? If you were, if you supposing that you were not a Christian and you were thinking about this and you were not involved in another religion, you were a free thinker, you were completely free of all religion and you were thinking about this, you might be tempted to say, who is God? What sort of a God is this that wants people, needs people to worship him? Is he like this fellow here? Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 3? Who went and built himself a monument which was 90 feet high, made of gold, that's 27 meters, and demanded people to worship him, made it a law that people would worship him. 27 feet high? 27 meters high, 90 feet high. We haven't actually got a, a building in Alexandra that we can compare that with. But if you were to take, those of you who know my house, double-story house, if you were to take that house and stack it three on top of each other, that would be pretty close to the size that they made that thing. And they stuck it out in the plain where everybody could see it and they demanded that everybody worship that. And then there was um, those, those three people who... Uh, what is his name? Uh, uh, I could say this a minute ago, but I could, eh? Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thank you, yeah. Um, they finished up in the fiery furnace because they refused to actually do that. I want to suggest that that's not the way it is when God is expecting people to worship him. Of course, you wondered where that little doggy story would fit into my sermon. Well, here it goes. When you look at that, when you saw that video, what did you actually see besides a very clever little dog? 
what is it about the relationship between Nan, the dog, and Kelsey, I think the, woman, the girl's name is, yeah, her owner, instructor, her trainer, and everything else. Did you see a bond between those two? Did you see a real love of complete trust and everything? And obedience and love and all of those things. And when God asks us to worship him, this is more like what he's talking about. Okay, so when we come into a good relationship, a healthy relationship with God, it's a bit more like that. Or maybe it's a bit more like this. It's a picture of what it may have been like in the Garden of Eden. Right? There's Adam and Eve. And for those cat lovers out there who think they're missing out this morning, did you see that Adam had a cat? <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, Adam didn't have a camera. But that's an artist's impression of what... It was very, it's very hard to find good pictures for some of these things. That's not bad. That's really not bad. That's kind of what it may have been like back in the Garden of Eden when God and Adam and Eve were all there together and the, every evening God used to come down and, and, commune, uh, and um, talk with Adam and Eve and they had this relationship. And it was unbroken. It was... It was so nice, wasn't it? And that's what we lost. That's what we lost when Adam sinned. When Satan, the serpent, offered, said to Eve about taking that fruit, the thing that he offered her was, you make up your own choice about what's right and what's wrong. You will be like gods, knowing good and evil for yourselves. You choose. And look where we have come to from there. What a mess we have nowadays. But that's where it came from. And when God asks us to come into that relationship with him and worship him, that's what he was, he's wanting to take us back to like that. Okay, of course, in heaven it will be like that again. In the meantime, yeah, that's kind of the relationship that we're looking for. So what is it that really inspires somebody to worship? Another story in the New Testament found in Luke, and it is about um, a group of lepers. And very timely, I think that we should talk about that because uh, there are so much there is so much similarity between what these lepers were, how they lived, their situations compared to what we have just been through in the world at the moment. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee somewhere, and he comes to a village, and there's 10 men with leprosy there. And they met him, and they stood at a distance. Why? Because they could not come close. They had a disease which was infectious, and their rules were, yeah, social distancing, big time. Stay away from everybody else because it could not be cured, not at that time. It was an infectious disease. And these 10 people were there, and they were, um, they recognized Jesus when he came, and when they saw him, they called out and said, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus says to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now, Jesus is not passing the buck here. He's not, he's not just telling them just to go away, go see a doctor, or go and see the priest because there's no doctors or anything like that. He's not sending them away because he's not going to, 
to, to heal them. It's quite the opposite. The only person who could verify that, uh, that leprosy was cured in those days was the priest. And if a person was cured, and I'm not too sure that this happened very often, but uh, if they were cured, they had to go to the priest and show themselves to the priest, and the priest would verify them to them that they were actually cured. Then it was safe, and only then was it safe for them to go and re-enter the community. And so, but Jesus tells them, go and see the priest. And so they go. And as they go, they are cured. They are cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, comes back. And praising God with a loud voice, he falls on his ground, on the ground, at Jesus' feet and thanks him. And it just throws in there that the fact that he is also a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, were there not ten lepers cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to turn back and give praise to God except for this foreigner? I reckon, I, I, as I studied this, I was intrigued by the mix, by the situation here before this happened, before the healing actually happened. Here we've got Samaritans again and Jews. They are on the opposite sides of the divide. There is friction between them as far as culture is concerned. But out of both of those cultures, there are people, this man from, Samarit from Samaria, and the rest probably, although it doesn't specifically say, but the, the implication is that the rest of them were purebred Jews. Both of them, all of them, are ostracized from their own societies. And here they are together. And so they're hanging out together These, because nothing matters anymore, does it? Culturally, nothing matters anymore. But this one, this Samaritan man, after he is healed, he is the one who turns and comes back and throws himself down on the ground at Jesus' feet and worships him. So what is the connection between belief and worship. I want to take you to another story now. On the evening of that first day of the week, this is just after the resurrection of Jesus. Right? The disciples who have been with Jesus for three years, they are broken, they are devastated when Jesus is taken and crucified, even though Jesus had told them what was going to happen. Um, they were mentally not prepared for what did happen saw the end of their world, so to speak, as Jesus was crucified and put in that grave. Some had been to the grave this morning, this very morning, and like Mary, two Marys, and they had found the tomb empty, and that these people now, and two of the, some of these disciples would have been with them, they're all together here, and I guess they're just all a little bit confused about what has happened. They're in a room. They've locked the doors because they consider themselves to be unsafe because of the rest of the Jews. The Jews out there because they've just crucified their Lord and suspect that they would, their lives would be in danger as well. 
Jesus comes. He stands in their midst, and he says to them, peace be with you. All right. That's important because they would have been quite startled and they were quite alarmed when Jesus just suddenly appears in the room. And then when he had said that, he shows them his hands. He shows them his side. And then the disciples rejoice. It's almost like an understatement. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They realized then that he really was resurrected from the dead. It was good. And they were really happy. But Thomas wasn't there. And why was Thomas not there? Sometimes we think about those white spaces between the verses in our Bibles, don't we? It simply says that Thomas was not there. Now, think about where all of those disciples were. They were all broken. They were all devastated when their Lord was crucified. They wondered what the future was. They really started, some of them may have really started to question that Jesus really was the Messiah because of the fact that he, had, he was dead now. And if they really believed that he, he was the Messiah, now he's dead and there was no hope anymore anyway. And so that's where they were at before this happened. And Thomas is not there, and I think that's significant. It tells us something about Thomas, that he really doubted the whole situation, saw no future in it, and he's not even there when the other disciples are gathered together. And so the other disciples, when they came to, Jesus, came to him and said, we've seen the Lord. And I think Thomas's reply confirms what I've just said. He said to them, unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands, unless I put my finger into those rooms and from the nails and put my, my hand into his side, I will never believe it. He was broken. He was not believing. And he was not convinced by what the disciples, the other disciples were saying. The disciples were there again a week later. Thomas is there. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you be? You know, even if there was doubts in his mind about the whole thing. Yes, of course he'd want to be there just to know. Just to know. And so he's there. And then Jesus comes amongst them again and he said to them, peace be to you. And then without any conversation having taken place between the disciples, other disciples, and himself during the course of that week in between, he turns to Thomas and says, put your finger here. Examine my hands. Have a look. Extend your hand. Touch the wounds. Put your hand into my side and do not continue to not believe. I paraphrase that just a little bit. Don't continue to not believe, but believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Seeing was believing. Okay? And believing and community and mission are all important in a church. But believing, that's what changed things for Thomas. Is Mitu here today? He was going to be. That's all right. What happened to Thomas after this? Does anybody know? Anybody know? He became a missionary where? 
He went to India as a missionary. That's right. You asked you ask me to he'll tell you quite a wee bit about it, what they know in their history about him going there. Amazing thing, isn't it? He probably went further than any of the other disciples in his mission. But before any of that could happen, he had to be convinced. He had to go through this. And then he worshipped my Lord and my God, and then he did all of these other things. During the week, during the last few weeks, or during lockdown, just after lockdown, I read this book. I don't know if any of you have seen it before. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Anybody heard of that book before? It's the story of uh, a Muslim man who was very, very devoted to his Muslim faith. He was so much, so skilled up that he used to debate even from, you know, you've heard of apologetics. You know, we talk about apologetics, Christians who can debate uh, the creation, debate uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They can, people that can debate that. This guy was so much into his Muslim faith that he used to debate it from the other side against Christianity and for his faith. But in his arguments, some of his friends who were Christians used to say to him, hey, you need to go back and check your facts because they are simply not right. They tend to actually, you might not know this, I didn't know this until reading this book, they tend to learn everything by rote and they don't consecutively read through the Quran or those, all those other Muslim writings to learn for themselves. They simply learn the passages that they need, they learn um, the things that they are told and they argue them and argue them. But he was challenged to go back and to learn and to research his own history, their own history, and find out what the church really was. He went through a terrible time as he started, as the very facts that he had learnt started to unravel, and he saw that, uh, and things started, he started to doubt his own faith, all right? He started to doubt his own history. He started to doubt the Quran. He started to doubt the, uh, whom, what sort of a man, uh, what's the name, Muhammad actually was. But it's not easy when you know very well that if you give away what you've been brought up with and raised with is going to destroy your relationship with your whole family, maybe even cost you your own life. And Laurie, you were talking about some of that this morning in your, in your prayer. I just want to read you one paragraph there that he actually wrote. He said, would it be worth it for me to pick up my cross and be crucified next to Jesus? If he was not God, then no. And see, this is what he's trying to work out. If he's, is he God or is he not? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Lose everything? I love to worship a false god a million times over. No, never. But if he is God, then yes. Being forever bonded to my Lord by suffering alongside of him? A million times over, yes. Now more than ever, the stakes were clear. I needed to know who he was. Everything hinged on his identity. I, be, I began begging him to reveal himself, standing, walking, praying, lying in bed. He did it. He did it all the time. I implored him to show me his truth. There was so much more in there. And eventually, he got to a point where he even stayed home from college. He was in university training to be a doctor. 
And on his third year, on the first day back, he didn't even go. And he just stayed at home. And he started reading consecutively through the Quran and tried to get stuff out of it. And then, then he read the book of Matthew. And when he got into the book of Matthew, he kept going and going and going until eventually he fell on his knees and gave his life to God. It's not easy for these guys to tip their whole world view upside down, give it away, and come to a new faith. Kim and I were talking about it at home as we were reading it. I read the book, she read the book, and, uh, and I asked her, I said, what was it like for you? Because as most of you know, uh, Kim was a, a Buddhist before she became a Christian. And I said, was it the same? And she says, yes, it was the same. People used to come into her house and they would discuss they would discuss, and her friends would say about these wooden idols and these artificial idols and plastic things that she had all around the house, and could they do anything for her? She kicked them out. Because <laughs> we can picture that, can't we? <laughs> Sent them away. It's not easy. And even at this time, she's another sister who was, only, who was really sick at this time. She's, her time is short. And she's been challenged. We went and visited her in January. We're so pleased we got over there and managed to get back because we won't get back again. The borders are closed and we cannot go back again. And she also, at the time, she, she's, she's working through these issues in her mind. We talked to her we, while we were there and she said that she believed these things. But is it her own? Has she made it her own? And how do you, when you're, when you're preparing stuff for what lies ahead, change your culture all of a sudden to, you know, if you really do believe in Christ, you would have to tip out all of those plans that she had made, Buddhist funerals, all that kind of stuff. It's, uh, they're big challenges. They are humongous challenges, and that's what people are faced with in the world. People who have never been brought up in a Christian society who realize that their whole world view is wrong, to change. It's a really, really big, cha big challenge. But then, when they do, then they'll do what Thomas did and say, my Lord and my God. So now I need to just bring it back to where we were this morning, why we were here this morning. And we have been singing and focusing this morning on worship and the songs that Claudine chose today were songs about worship because she knew what we were going to be talking about today. And we sang the song, Light of the World, you step down into darkness, open my eyes, let me see, beauty that made this heart adore you, hope of a life spent with you. Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Do you remember singing that just a few minutes ago? Did we do that? Yeah, we did that. And do we notice when we sing those songs just how real those words really are? Do we lift up our hands in worship? Okay. Country boy might not lift his hands very high, but it's an expression of the genuineness that we feel when we consider who Jesus really was. And whether we do this or whether we get down on our knees or whatever we do, it's from the heart. We need to open our hearts in the worship. We haven't sung this one yet. We're going to. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Is that what you thought? 
I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands and feet, my Savior, on that cursed tree. This is what Thomas was working out in his mind, wasn't it? His body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance sealed by heavy stones. Messiah still and all alone. I praise the name of of the Lord our God. I praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise, O Lord, O Lord, our God. They're beautiful words, aren't they? And you would have noticed that all of the songs we had this morning were focused on the subject of of worship. Yes, we need to stop what we are doing, regardless of how busy we are, even in the things of God, and spend this time just worshiping. Just take that moment to worship. Remember who we serve and why we are doing what we're doing so that we can just refocus and be lifted by the salvation that we've all experienced. I'm going to pray. I think we need to worship God here in prayer as well because songs are just part of it. But we're going to pray and we're going to worship God in prayer and then I'm going to hand back to Claudine and she's going to take it from there. So Father God, we just want to thank you, Lord, that we can worship you today. We thank you, Lord, for the way you revealed your truth to us. To Thomas, Jesus said, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And we are amongst those today. People who have come years later and in the far off places around the world. We've come to know Jesus. We've come to know who he is. We've come to know what you have done for us. And you want to bring us into that right relationship with yourself. We want to, you want to give us peace and comfort and you want to give us uh, a hope for the future. 